and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the announcement today by President Biden that he is running for a second term, at the end of which he would be 86. We'll examine the concern among some Democrats that it might be difficult to get young voters to the polls who are not inspired by the party's gerontocracy, with too many elderly politicians in top positions, like Senator Feinstein, and discuss what kind of bench of contenders the Democrats have that will have to sit it out for the next four years. Joining us is Jonathan Alter, an analyst and contributing correspondent for NBC News and MSNBC. He's a former senior editor and columnist for Newsweek and is the author of The Promise, President Obama, One Year, and The Defining Moment, FDR's Hundred Days and the Triumph of Hope, both New York Times bestsellers. His latest books are The Center Holes, Obama and His Enemies, and His Very Best, Jimmy Carter, A Life, and he runs the Substack newsletter, Old Goats. Then we'll get an insider's look into the dynamics in the Biden Oval Office and assess his relationship with Vice President Kamala Harris, who's coming into the spotlight more and more, having made earlier stumbles but now appears closer than ever to Biden, who she might succeed in the presidency should anything happen to him. Joining us is Chris Whipple, a multiple Peabody and Emmy award-winning producer at CBS's 60 Minutes and ABC's Primetime. He's the author of the New York Times best-selling book The Gatekeepers, How the White House Chiefs of Staff Define Every Presidency, and The Spy Masters, How the CIA Directors Shape History in the Future. His latest book is The Fight of His Life, Inside Joe Biden's White House. Then finally, with revelations that Governor DeSantis' Surgeon General, who was an anti-vaxxer and a supporter of hydroxychloroquine, has doctored data to lie about the dangers of COVID vaccines on young men, we'll speak with Ryan Cooper, Managing Editor at the American Prospect. He is the co-host of the Left Anchor podcast, as well as the author of the new book, How Are You Going to Pay for That? Smart Answers to the Dumbest Questions in Politics, and we'll discuss his latest article at the American Prospect, Republicans' War on Their Own Public Health. Tens of thousands of conservatives died because they believed anti-vaccine lies. Now the GOP is bringing back measles and polio. And before we begin, I would like to thank our sustaining listeners whose continued and growing support for Background Briefing enable us to remain independent without corporate underwriting, commercials, paywalls, or constant fundraising as we deliver a daily news analysis by seeking out the most knowledgeable experts closest to the scene to explore three or more major stories and issues in depth with our sound bites and spin. As a dangerous and devious serial liar and selfish sociopath continues to haunt our politics and poison our social discourse, whose angry and armed followers assault our democracy and attempt to impose a tyranny of the minority in lockstep with their fraudulent wannabe mob boss and Fuhrer, your monthly donations, large and small, at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or at our tax-deductible non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation at publictruthmedia.org contribute to an informed citizenry needed to protect and defend the will of the majority as we work to build a reality-based community in post-truth America. And joining us now is Jonathan Alter, an analyst and contributing correspondent for NBC News and MSNBC. He's the former senior editor and columnist for Newsweek, and he is the author of The Promise, President Obama, Year One, and The Defining Moment, FDR's Hundred Days and the Triumph of Hope, both New York Times bestsellers. And his latest books are The Center Holes, Obama and His Enemies, and His Very Best, Jimmy Carter, Alive. And he runs the Substack newsletter, Old Goats. Welcome to Background Briefing, Jonathan Alter. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. And today, President Joe Biden announced that he's running for re-election in 2024, setting uh, the stage for what a lot of people are somewhat disappointed in, and that is a rematch with Donald Trump. That in itself, what does that say about American politics, particularly given this kind of subtext of rule by gerontocracy? Well, it definitely says that we have rule by gerontocracy and that our systems are not ventilating properly. Um, Really, there's no reason that we should have this 
rematch um, in this way. Um, and it would be uh, actually um, the first time uh, since uh, 1956 when President Eisenhower and Adlai Stevenson, the Democratic candidate, um, ran against each other for the second time in a row. Uh, this is something the American people don't want. The Democrats don't want Biden to be their nominee, even though he's unified the party and has created for himself a very clear path to uh, the nomination. Polls show that um, Democrats um, don't give him a majority support as their nominee. So, you know, that in itself is rather strange. Uh, on the Republican side, um, Donald Trump is leading in the polls. Um, but, you know, those same polls indicate that he would have a very, very hard time returning to the White House and beating Biden or another Democrat in a general election. So even on the Republican side, there's this kind of irrationality at work that they're on a path to nominate a loser. At the same time, I don't think that we should assume that just because now, you know, 18 months away from the 2024 election, that um, these will definitely be the, the two nominees of the two parties because stuff happens in American politics on a, re on a regular, uh, on a rather common basis. So I think there's a very decent chance that um, something will happen and it's quite possible, not likely, but quite possible that Biden and Trump are not the nominees. Well, a year from now, we'll be starting into the primaries and Trump will be uh, on trial, maybe in several trials, will he not? Uh, well, it's not clear that he'll actually be on trial, but he could be um, under indictment in um, uh, several cases. He already is in one and possibly uh, on trial in some civil matters. So he's got um, five or six cases against him that are likely to go to trial. And that means that uh, you're quite right. We could have a situation where he's not on trial in two places at the same time because of the way trial schedules work. They will, you know, space them out. But he could be on trial more than once during the primary season. So why do you think, Jonathan Alter, the Democrats don't have a deep bench or any bench at all by the look of it? I mean, the Republicans clearly have a lot of contenders with DeSantis, and obviously he seems to be fading, but others, and we may have a repeat of 2016 where you'll have a whole bunch of Republicans up there on stage, and it'll be like a reality TV show where Trump will knock them off the island. But why do you think the Democrats have such a thin bench? Well, I don't think they do have a thin bench. Uh, primaries are uh, a great way of telling you what the talent is in your party. Um, and so all sorts of uh, new interesting uh, candidates come forward when there are open primaries. And, you know, people that one wouldn't have thought of as being on the bench, like, you know, Look at look at Bernie Sanders. I mean, he wasn't thought of in 2016 as a possible candidate until he decided to run. And then he got a lot of he got a lot of support. So this is what primaries are for. And when when you know people say, well, the Democrats don't have anybody, all kinds of people would emerge. I could give you several names of people who would potentially be very good candidates, arguably better candidates in a general election than President Biden, but they're not running because to do so would be to weaken Biden. And every Democrat knows that and the stakes are too high to do that because uh, the only thing worse for the Democratic Party than Joe Biden being the nominee is for Joe Biden to be challenged for the nomination now that he's decided to run. 
that way lies defeat, as you know, we've learned in several cases where incumbent presidents who've been weakened by significant primary challenges go on to lose in the general election. 1980 is the most bitter example for Democrats when Ted Kennedy challenged uh, incumbent President Jimmy Carter and weakened him and Carter lost to Ronald Reagan in the fall. But something similar happened um, just four years earlier to President Ford when he was challenged by Reagan in the primaries and he went on to lose to Carter in the fall. Um, So this is, you know, not helpful to um, incumbents when they're challenged. And that's really why no Democrats uh, of any significance have challenged President Biden. They don't want it on their consciences that they weakened him and opened the door for uh, Trump or another horrible MAGA Republican by their lights to uh, get into power. But if Biden were to step down and apparently, uh, I'm told that Jill actually likes being first lady. So I don't know the extent to which he's committed, but he seems to be. And apparently, well, he, get, he gets pretty prickly if anybody talks about his age. Yes, he and he, you know, he announced his candidacy, so that's no longer an open question. He is running, mm-hmm. and with the full support of his wife, uh, he gets. As you said, he gets uh, a little testy when people um, bring up his age, but they are going to continue to do so. It's not an issue that he's going to be able to remove. All he can do is manage it. He's 80 years old. He would be um, 86 at the end of a second term. Um, He's already the oldest person ever to be president of the United States. Uh, The real concern for Democrats is that at that age, if you get sick, you know, even if you don't die, it becomes really the only issue. And then at that point, should uh, Joe Biden in the next 18 months fall ill, even if it's not a serious life-threatening illness, if he does, then suddenly the race will be framed as Trump versus Kamala Harris. That's not really as favorable for Democrats as, you know, Trump versus Biden, because Kamala Harris is not popular. So, you know, you have a not a very uh, helpful situation for Democrats where neither their president nor their vice president is particularly popular. But there's no opportunity for any other candidates to come forward. Um, But I think this this sense that, oh, there's nobody else. Who else is there other than Biden? That's what primaries are for. That's so, you know, the former mayor of New Orleans, Mitch Landrieu, a lot of people uh, inside the Democratic Party think he would be a terrific candidate. Gretchen Whitmer, the governor of Michigan, a lot of people think she would be a terrific candidate. But these and others, you know, don't have a chance to uh show their stuff. You know, Pete Buttigieg, if Biden wasn't running, he would have a lot of support. Perhaps Gavin Newsom, the governor of uh, California, would get uh, a certain amount of support. So it's really hard to say because we don't have the primaries to um, give us a chance to know. So, you know, I just wrote a uh, piece today uh, on my old goats substack newsletter about Robert F. Kennedy Jr., who has announced his campaign. The only problem with him is he's a lying conspiracy theorist who is just going to try to damage Joe Biden in the course of this race. He's not he's not going to win the Democratic nomination, but he can cause a lot of trouble for Biden in the same way that I think somebody will emerge to cause Donald Trump some trouble on his way to the Republican nomination. And just because Trump is leading right now doesn't mean that he will necessarily be the nominee. Yes, DeSantis, Ron DeSantis, has been having trouble in the last uh, few weeks, but somebody else could get some traction, win a primary or two, and suddenly you have a very different race on the Republican side. And 
if one of those other Republicans is nominated, I think Biden would be in serious jeopardy uh, of being reelected because many Americans have just concluded he's too old to be president. And you mentioned uh, Robert Kennedy Jr., who's uh, announced he's running. He's anti-vaxxer as well as parroting Putin's talking points. But also there's the self-help author, Marianne Williamson. But neither of those, we think, are getting much traction. I might add uh, to your list, uh, Jonathan, Senator Chris Murphy, who's the strongest foreign policy candidate in the Democratic Senate. So, yeah. um, so Chris Murphy is the kind of candidate who should be running. If we were in normal political times, you'd see candidates like Chris Murphy. He's young, smart, experienced. You're coming to the fore. So that's why I, I, I reject the idea that the Democrats have a weak bench. They just don't have the candidates because Joe Biden has decided to run again and nobody wants to weaken him and help open the door to Trump. But is there a way to do what Nancy Pelosi did? I guess it's too late now to say I'm stepping down and I'm handing the torch to a younger generation. Well, I think unfortunately it is too late given Biden's announcement of his candidacy. And it's it's too bad because if Biden did that, he would be remembered as a very, very good president who did an honorable thing, and he would go out as a hero uh, with a very good record and a lot of goodwill across the country because it would be so unexpected. But instead, he did the typical political thing, trying to cling to power, believing that only he can be president. And I see why he thinks that, because he is more experienced in dealing with Russia, say, And, you know, the situation with Ukraine is very perilous. And so I understand why Biden has made this decision. It's very common that uh, older um, CEOs, older office holders don't know when to hang it up. We see this with Dianne Feinstein. We see it with Senator Chuck Grassley on the Republican side, who's say he's going to run for reelection that would keep him in the Senate until he was in his late 90s. I mean, this is preposterous. And it's it's a sign, another sign of the weakness of American democracy. We've got to have new blood, but it sure looks like we're not going to get it this year. So just in closing then, Jonathan Alter, Biden in the campaign ads that they put out and his appearance today, he's going to run on the abortion issue, he's going to run against MAGA Republicans. He's going to talk about banning books and telling people who they can and can't love, etc. The young lawmakers down there in Tennessee seem to have inspired a lot of Democrats. In the state of Tennessee, by the way, there's been an enormous number of Democrats have come out of the woodwork. And the lesson there is that if Democrats don't hold back in red states and try to be more like Republicans, that whole myth has been exploded by these young African-American lawmakers down there. I mean, if you talk like a real Democrat in red states, you you get more traction than if you come across as a Republican light. Well, we don't know that. That hasn't been tested by elections. And, you know, Tennessee uh, continues to be a very red state. But Clearly, you know, there is something going on uh, among people who are resisting. And I think that it's very smart of President Biden to run an aggressive anti-MAGA campaign, taking on the right wing directly on abortion, on book banning. And, And it's right for him to cast it all as a question of freedom, which is what this country was built on. And and it, the, the, it's the original American idea. We're the only nation founded on an idea. And that word freedom was kind of hijacked by Republicans for a long time. And it's very interesting that uh, Joe Biden is going to uh, run on it and, um, and that he is not going to try to, you know, tack to the center in any significant way, but will run a very aggressive campaign painting MAGA Republicans as out of the mainstream, which is what polls show they are. If you look at 
the polling on issues like uh, abortion, something like a six week ban that Ron DeSantis just signed in Florida. That's terribly unpopular. And this book burning is unpopular. Um, so I, I think Biden is indicating that he's going to run a smart campaign. The problem is selling himself and selling his record. Um, and voters tend to pocket what you've done for them in the past. And this is why both Trump and Biden are not absorbing the main message of our history, our political history, which is that American elections are about the future and what you're going to do down the road for to make people's lives better. And I think right now Biden has the better of that argument. But when you're 80 years old, it's a little hard to run a campaign about the future. And when you, you know, when you're Donald Trump obsessed with grievances of the past and, you know, pretty darn old himself, it's hard to run a campaign about the future. And so I think, unfortunately, if present uh, trends continue, we are going to be doomed to uh, a campaign that uh, is more about the past than the future and will, you know, anger uh, a lot of Americans and make it more likely that there, there's a third party challenge. And I think people need to not project out from right now and assume that 2024 will be the way it looks from here. A lot of things could happen, uh, uh, both in the trials of Donald Trump, in the, you know, the health of an 80 year old president, in the willingness of somebody to chip away at their support. Um, I think some kind of challenger to Trump will emerge. And um, the idea that the rivals will split the anti-Trump vote, paving the way for Trump is ignorant of the way primaries actually work, where um, after the first two or three primaries, almost everybody who hasn't uh, won uh, is out of money and they drop out. So you could very easily have, um, you know, two or even one challenger with a shot at Trump, um, which is why I don't think he has a lock on the Republican nomination. And on the Democratic side, even if you have these, you know, crazy candidates like Robert F. Kennedy Jr. or, um, you know, new age candidate like Marianne Williamson, the New Hampshire primary is has a long history of very unlikely challengers getting a lot of votes, not necessarily winning but taking a big bite out of the incumbent. So like Pat Buchanan, you know, went after a sitting president in 1992, George H.W. Bush, and he got like 38% of the vote in New Hampshire and made it much harder for, for George Bush that year. And he ended up losing to Bill Clinton. You know, so these, these candidates... Uh, who seem like they're on the fringe, they can they can do some real damage. Well, just in closing, though, in Trump's first 2024 campaign in Waco a few weeks ago, he said, today, today I am your warrior, I am your justice, and for those who have been wronged and betrayed, I am your retribution. And he so far said that he wants to impose mandatory stop and frisk, deploy the military to fight street crime, break up gangs and deport immigrants and purge the federal workforce and charge leakers. Um, so can the F word emerge on the Democratic side? Trump does, to many, and certainly to me, represent the face of an incipient American fascism. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And, you know, you, you didn't mention that he's also pledged to, quote, terminate, unquote, the Constitution, which as president, you take an oath to uphold, and he wants to terminate it. Uh, I I don't know whether calling him a fascist um, works politically. I haven't seen good polling on that, whether that is persuasive. Um, but it shouldn't be about making us feel good, us being those of us who consider 
um, Trump to be a dire threat to democracy. It's not about whether we feel good or whether it's the right word from the dictionary to uh, describe him, which it very well might be. Uh, it's about whether it works to prevent him from coming back into office. And that's a question I just don't know the answer to, but I think it's the way it should be framed. So I, I want, I'm happy to call him a fascist as long as it costs him votes. If it wins him votes, call, calling him a fascist, then I won't ever use the F word. Well, Jonathan Alder, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Um, thanks so much for having me. It's always a pleasure to be on your air. Well, thank you. And again, I've been speaking with Jonathan Alter, who's an analyst and contributing correspondent for NBC News and MSNBC. He's the former senior editor and columnist for Newsweek and the author of The Promise, President Obama, Year One, and The Defining Moment, FDR's 100 Days and the Triumph of Hope, both New York Times bestsellers. And his latest books are The Center Holds, Obama and His Enemies, and his very best, Jimmy Carter, A Life. And he runs the Substack newsletter, Old Goats. We're going to take a brief station break and back with an insider's look into the dynamics in the Biden Oval Office and assess his relationship with Vice President Kamala Harris. Let's dance in sky, let's dance for a while. Heaven can wait, we're only watching the skies. Hoping for the best, but expecting the worst. Are you going to drop the bomb or not? Let us die young or let us live forever. We don't have the power, but we never say never. Sitting in a sandpit, life is a short trip. The music's for the sad man. Can you imagine when this race is won? Turn our golden faces into the sun. Praising our leaders, we're getting in tune. The music's played by the, the madman. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and joining us now is Chris Whipple, a multiple Peabody and Emmy Award-winning producer at CBS's 60 Minutes and ABC's Primetime. He's the author of the New York Times bestselling book, The Gatekeepers, How the White House Chiefs of Staff Define Every Presidency, and The Spy Masters, How the CIA Directors Shape History and the Future. And his latest book is the fight of his life inside Joe Biden's White House. Welcome to Background Briefing, Chris Whipple. Good to be back. Well, thanks for joining us, Chris. And you, uh, I don't think anybody else has had the access to this White House and has written a kind of contemporary history up until now. You've spoken for your book with Chief of Staff Ron Klain, Secretary of State Anthony Blinken, CIA Director Bill Burns, and the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Mark Milley, among others. So I take it you've got about the best insight into Biden's mental acuity, which has become a concern for a lot of Democrats and a weapon that Trump and the Republicans are wielding. So what's your take on Biden's fitness, mental acuity at the age of 80? Well, first off, I should say, um, again, thanks for having me. And, and this this book was not not easy, and, and getting that kind of access to almost all of Joe Biden's inner circle was a real challenge. Um, and of course, compounding that is the fact that you're writing about a White House in real time, which is like designing an airplane in mid-flight. Uh, you don't know where you're going to land, and you just hope you can do it safely. Um, so. Uh, Having spoken to everybody who's uh, so many people who worked closely with Biden over the last two years, um, I can tell you that to a person, they insist that that uh, cognitively Joe Biden is just fine. Um, of course, Biden is Biden. And, and we saw in, in Ireland recently where he confused the, you know, the the all blacks rugby team with the black and tans, you know, paramilitaries and during the troubles. But that's that's Joe Biden um, in terms of mental acuity and energy. Um, by all accounts, he's 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 fine. He's 80 years old, but 
we all know 60-year-olds who are old, and we all know people in their 80s who are young. Um, They insist that Biden is fine. Well, one of the things that comes up all the time is, of course, that if anything happens to him in the next four years or five years, he'd be 86 when his second term would end, is Kamala Harris ready? And she's gotten a pretty bad rap, and your book reveals a lot of what happened on the inside. So why don't we talk a little bit about that, about the extent to which she has been learning on the job, if you will. Biden didn't help matters by saying at one point that she is a work in progress. But initially, she was handed some pretty tough assignments, particularly on the Central America portfolio, which she didn't handle well. Yeah. So the quote you just mentioned, uh, Biden telling a close friend of his that uh, that and in effect sort of rolling his eyes as he did so, saying she's a work in progress. Uh, uh, I, I reported in my book and um, and I the, the relationship is fascinating and complicated. I, I think there's no doubt that Joe Biden and Kamala Harris had a genuine bond early on. I mean, Joe Biden would look around if he was in a meeting at the White House and she wasn't there, he would ask, where is she? Uh, by all accounts, he really valued her input in in many of these meetings. Um, he gave her some important national security responsibilities. So I'll, I'll get to that in a second. But things got dicier as time went on and she struggled with the portfolio she had and certainly with the Northern Triangle. Uh, and she had that awkward visit to Guatemala when she uh, basically fumbled a question from Lester Holt about going to the border or not going there. And so I think that that troubled Biden. And and then he learned that it wasn't just her allies, but also the second gentleman, Doug Emhoff, was going around and complaining that um, She'd been given, in effect, Mission Impossible, too many difficult assignments. Well, this really annoyed Biden, and he and he felt that he hadn't asked her to do anything he hadn't done for Barack Obama as vice president. And in fact, she had she had asked for the voting rights assignment, which, of course, was a heavy lift. So I think she's she's performed much better uh, recently. I think that her, uh, you know, she was sent to the Munich Security Conference by Biden twice, once on the eve of the invasion of Ukraine. And I have some pretty vivid, unreported, previously unreported stories about her meeting with uh, with Zelensky. Uh, and and then more recently, when she accused uh, Putin of being a war criminal. And and I think she's been more effective recently uh, on the issue of women's reproductive rights in the wake of the Dobbs decision. But uh, it's been a rocky couple of years for her. So how does Biden deal with it? I mean, first of all, in many ways, the job of the vice president is to be invisible. So how does he deal with raising her profile and reassuring people that if anything happens to him, she would be uh, ready for prime time? Well, there's a limit to what he can do. It's it's really up to her. And, um, you know, there are probably some people who wonder whether the Biden White House uh, had had muzzled her during early on. And, and I can tell you that's not the case. Ron Klain, uh, Biden's then White House chief of staff, w- would meet with her regularly and tell her, look, you, you can't score runs from the dugout. You got to get out there and 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 raise your profile. And uh, and she was reluctant to do that for whatever reason, maybe felt burned by some of the early criticism. So, um, you know, at the, at the end of the day, it's, it's up to Kamala Harris. But you'll notice that in his video announcement of his, that he's running for re-election released this morning, that uh, she appears, she's quite prominent in, in the video. And, uh, I think that uh, you know he he intends to 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 put her out there, uh, particularly on the subject of women's reproductive rights. So, one of the things that's sort of 
catches my attention in in your book is is the extent to which you say that Joe Biden has been constantly underestimated from day one, and at the two-year mark, he proves that he could deliver a lot more than anybody thought. And that's certainly the case when he was compared to, F, or his situation was compared to FDR's in terms of having such an ambitious legislative agenda. FDR, of course, had a massive advantage of huge majorities in the House and Senate, whereas Biden had barely had a majority in both houses, and he had a couple of Democrats who were completely unreliable, Manchin and Cinema. But he nevertheless got a lot done. I mean, I think that's unassailably impressive, isn't it? Yeah, I think he's really um, exceeded expectations um, in a number of ways. Uh, nobody, nobody really thought in January of 2021 that Joe Biden would be able to get any bipartisan legislation passed. Um, you know, just think about the previous four years and, and even the eight years before that with uh, Barack Obama, uh, the polarization, the, the bitter partisanship. Uh, and yet it took him a while, but Biden ultimately did uh, really succeeded in, in passing legislation that, that rivaled LBJ's um, in, in, uh, on a bipartisan basis, much of it. So, um, I, you know, I really see the Biden presidency as a, and, and my book as a political thriller in three acts. And the first act was the unbelievably fraught transition from Trump to Biden, which was the bloodiest since the Civil War. And, and I have uh, many untold stories about that. The first year of the Biden, the second act is really the first year of the Biden presidency when he, uh, of course, had the debacle of the withdrawal from Afghanistan and the steady decline in his approval rating. But the third act, I really think, began on February 24, 2022, when Vladimir Putin invaded Ukraine. Joe Biden uh, rallied the Western world uh, in defense of Ukraine in a way that I think very few others, if any, could have done. He was he was perfectly prepared, spent his whole career really preparing for a moment like that. And then he was able to, again, succeed uh, after a very tough first year through sheer persistence and and some uh, adroit maneuvering by his chief of staff, Ron Klain and others, uh, in passing a pretty remarkable legislative record. So I think he goes into the re-election with some real momentum but it's a political thriller with no ending yet. So you don't think that in any way he's run out of juice then? I mean, he does, and a lot of people have suggested that he kind of walks in a kind of shuffle that makes him look like an old man. Somebody said it was it was a back problem or something. Yeah, I think, I think his doctor said that arthritis uh, it affected his gait. Uh-huh, okay. And the other thing is that... He's no great public speaker. Is there anyone in the White House that can tell him to keep his speeches short and pungent and to the point? <laughs> well, they've they've kept him uh, pretty disciplined, I think, recently. And, um, you know, he's not a great orator, but that State of the Union speech, I thought, was remarkable in a number of ways. Not only the energy and the focus of it, but the way in which he he just owned the radical right hecklers uh, who tried to uh, tried to interrupt and and uh, he he just owned them on the subject of social security. We you know I think that that was quite a performance. So look, I mean, does he does he commit gaffes from time to time? Um, sure. Uh, are they even remotely comparable to what came out of Donald Trump's mouth for four years? I don't think so. Well, there's no comparison. And for the life of me, I don't know why anybody supports Donald Trump. I mean, he's such a catastrophe. I don't know whether you watched the interview that he did with Tucker Carlson recently. But, I mean, it's embarrassing what a, an idiot this man is and how dangerous he is. And he also has completely fascistic plans. So do you think Biden is going to get tough 
I mean, they're running on. They're going to run on abortion, women's rights, following Dobbs, run against MAGA Republicans. But will how far will they take it, Chris, to the point where the opponent, if it's Trump, which it seems likely, that the opponent, you know, is a wannabe, you know, the orange duce. He's he's a wannabe dictator, and he would be a catastrophe. Well, I think I think the Biden White House does believe that Trump uh, may very well be the nominee. I, I think they, I don't think they underestimate um, the danger of that. You, you rightly point out that um, as incoherent and as um, wounded as Trump may be, um, he's, he's still dangerous. And, um, you know, remember it was something like 77,000 votes in a few swing states last time, even though Biden won by 7 million votes. So um, he's dangerous. And I think Biden will do a couple of things. I think to some extent, he'll, he'll follow the uh, the script of the midterms when he, he focused on, as he did in his video this morning, when he focused on freedom and how the Republicans would like to take your freedoms away, uh, including women's reproductive rights. He'll also emphasize the, I think, the threat to democracy that MAGA represents. Uh, and then, but the third leg in that stool will be uh, just governing. You know, it worked pretty well for Bill Clinton when they were impeaching him for Monica Lewinsky and, and uh, Newt Gingrich was setting his hair on fire on a daily basis. Uh, Bill Clinton largely stuck to governing. And that served him pretty well. So I, th- I think that'll be the Biden playbook. Well, then just in closing then, uh, Chris Whipple, how does Biden fire up the young people? I mean, the, the two African-American lawmakers down in Tennessee certainly fired up a lot of young people across the country and particularly in Tennessee who are becoming politically active. And if he can get the younger generation's to vote, which they are normally, it's a pretty heavy lift, particularly for Democrats. They've got a natural majority, but they don't necessarily get the turnout necessary. They're going to have to have the turnout. And of course, Kamala Harris helps in terms of the African-American turnout and the minority vote to some extent. But is there anything that Biden can do to inspire young people? Well, I think he can he can emphasize, uh, you know, not only run um, on, you know, in effect, the 2022 midterms were were normal against crazy and normal one, uh, you know, normal return to, you know, the the way the country's affairs were conducted prior to Trump works for an older audience. But I think for a younger audience, he's he'll he'll be emphasizing gun control, global warming, women's reproductive rights. I mean, I think those are I think those are the big issues uh, among younger voters. And I think he'd be smart to to really emphasize those issues, uh, because, as you say, that that turnout is important. Well, apparently there's a, a Democratic congressman from North Carolina who is the most popular on TikTok. So, <laughs> and he's connecting with the younger generation. I don't know whether any, any way that they can give him a prominent job. But, um, I mean, there's work to be done in that front, don't you think, Chris, just in closing? Yeah, there is. And, and of course, the uh, I think that the Justins uh, will help, too. If I, were, if I were Biden, as you know, he met with them yesterday. Uh, I would I would put them to work as well. Well, Chris Whipple, I thank you very much for joining us. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. And again, I'm speaking with Chris Whipple, who's a multiple Peabody and Emmy Award-winning producer at CBS's 60 Minutes and ABC's Primetime. He's the author of the New York Times best-selling book, The Gatekeepers, How the White House Chiefs of Staff Define Every Presidency, and The Spy Masters, How the CIA Directors Shaped History and the Future. And his latest book is The Fight of His Life, Inside Joe Biden's White House. We can take a brief station break. We're back looking into revelations that Governor DeSantis' Surgeon General, who was an anti-vaxxer and supporter of hydroxychloroquine, has doctored data to lie about the dangers of COVID vaccines on young men. I can never be 
Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Ryan Cooper, the Managing Editor at The American Prospect. He's the co-host of the Left Anchor podcast, as well as the author of the new book, How Are You Going to Pay for That? Smart Answers to the Dumbest Questions in Politics. And his latest article at The American Prospect is Republicans' War on Their Own Public Health. Tens of thousands of conservatives died because they believed anti-vaccine lies. Now the GOP is bringing back measles and polio. Welcome to Background Briefing, Ryan Cooper. Glad to be here. Well, thanks for joining us. And I don't know whether you caught the recent interview, Ryan, uh, that Tucker Carlson did with Robert Kennedy Jr., who is running for the presidency on the Democratic side, where it was kind of a love fest. Uh, but I know we're going to be talking about Republicans in the context of anti-vaxxing, but there is a prominent anti-vaxxer on the Democratic side now running for president. Yeah, supposedly. I mean, the, 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 I think, you know, we've seen some polls where Kennedy is at 14% or something, and I think that is... Uh, almost entirely down to his name alone. Um, once, you know, ordinary liberals get wind of what this guy's politics are, which is basically just like Tucker Carlson. I mean, anti-vaccine, you know, conspiracy theories is pretty much his entire, you know, platform. Um, I don't think, you know, he's going to break out of single digits if that. Right. But yeah, it's a broad problem. You know, and I think it's mainly on the right, but you do see, you know, so there's certain lingering uh, <clears throat> skepticism among, you know, a certain fraction of kind of dippy, you know, crystal gripping type of uh, uh, hippies or whatever, that vaccines are unnatural or something like that. And it's deadly. Well, it's been particularly deadly on the Republican side, as you point out in your article, Ryan, that 320,000 American deaths could have been prevented with vaccines, and this is according to a Brown University studies, and those are concentrated in red states like West Virginia, Tennessee, and Wyoming. And in the state of Florida, where you now have DeSantis has chosen an anti-vaccine quack as the state surgeon general, over 29,000 Floridians have died from preventable deaths from COVID. Yeah, that's right. And I, and, uh, I should emphasize that that Brown University um, analysis only looked at data from January 2021 to April 2022. So that probably captures like the majority of vaccine preventable deaths, um, you know, because that's after the Omicron spike last winter. And after that, you know, COVID deaths have been relatively low, at least compared to, you know, the previous uh, carnage. Um, but, you know, we're still talking about several hundred deaths a day for that entire period afterwards. And, you know, most people got their first round of shots, but almost nobody got their updated Omicron-specific boosters. And... Um, you know, that isn't just true in the United States, but probably the majority of those deaths could have been prevented by, uh, you know, a real vaccine rollout. If people had treated this like a flu shot that you got to get your, uh, you know, an updated version every year. And, yeah, you know, the, the, there's reporting uh, today that this uh, this fellow, the Surgeon General in Florida, had personally meddled with the conclusions of a basically Florida policy statement to say that young men in particular are at a high risk of serious side effects from the vaccine. And so they shouldn't get the vaccine. And that is, you know, not it's not only against the CDC's recommendation, it just hugely exaggerates the danger of what we're talking about. According to the studies that I've seen, you're talking about, in the absolute worst case scenario, something like a two in 100,000 chance of experiencing myocarditis or, you know, uh, pericarditis. And in the vast majority of cases, it's mild and it's easily reduced. And uh, when you compare it to the, the chance of getting that same condition from a case of COVID, 
it's something like 10 times worse and a worse case of it. Uh, you can have multi-system inflammation, you know, not just heart swelling, but your whole body suffering an attack of inflammation, and that could be deadly. And so, you know, every, this stuff is going to be with us forever. Everybody should get the vaccine, even children, even young men. It's a slight risk, but it's less risky than going without it, like any type of medication. And this guy, he lied. And just, you know, whether a combination of insanity or cynicism, DeSantis and him, they fed tens of thousands of their own constituents, disproportionately, but not entirely Republicans, into the meat grinder of the pandemic. You know, they, they killed through their own actions probably thousands of people. Um, and it's just one of the most disgusting things I've ever seen in American politics. And that is a high bar. Well, this is DeSantis. Uh, he's, he chose this crackpot, Joseph Ladapo, as his Surgeon General. The guy is a anti-vaxxing nutcase. He's a big supporter of hydroxychloroquine. He's affiliated with the conservative Americans, America's frontline doctors, a group that was founded specifically to fight COVID restriction. Then they're fervent anti-vaxxers, and he's close to Simone Gold the head of this organization. And as you say, he just completely doctored a, a report, lied about it. And you're concerned, I take it, Ryan, that this is a harbinger for things to come? Yeah, I mean, you, you, you could just imagine how this might play out in a different circumstance. Because the, the other thing about this is that, you know, these vaccines were developed under the Trump administration with the massive support of the Trump administration, Operation Warp Speed, you know, they spent tens of billions of dollars on pre-purchase agreements with the pharmaceutical companies and on direct research support through the National Institutes of Health. It was a government scientist who basically designed the core of the Moderna vaccine, Barney Graham is his um, name, I believe. And, you know, Trump has has sort of half-heartedly encouraged people to, to get vaccinated. And, I mean, it is legitimately an amazing accomplishment. This is the fastest vaccine development in history by, by a huge margin, and it, it was desperately needed. And Trump did the right thing. It wasn't, you know, like he just signed the paper, basically. But, you know, the buck uh, uh, stops here, as they, as they say. The CASA works for the czar. And you see conservatives throwing you know, like one of their greatest accomplishments in the history of the Republican Party completely to the wolves to pander to this lunatic idea that, you know, the vaccine is more dangerous than the disease that it, if not prevents, you know, help, uh, helps you fight off. And imagine if it were a Democratic president that had been in the chair, if it were Hillary Clinton that that had been president and and she had done an operation warp speed type thing i think there's no question that vaccine resistance among republicans would have been you know many times greater than it was and the death toll would have been much worse and and people like DeSantis and other you know republican influencers would have been absolutely happy to just you know feed their own loyal voters and listeners and and, and watchers on television uh, into the, you know, hospitals and ventilators and to, you know, pander to the most delirious conspiracy theories on the right. So your article at the American Prospect, Ryan Cooper, Republicans war on their own health plan. Tens of thousands of conservatives died because they believed anti-vaccine lies. Now the GOP is bringing back measles and polio. So let's talk about that. I mean, you start out by pointing out that it's a surprise to readers to learn this, but Mississippi has the highest child vaccination rate of any state in the country. And the main reason for that is that there were no religious exemptions. But now a George W. Bush appointed federal district judge in Mississippi has ruled to reintroduce the religious exemption. So that's going to roll back the clock, right? Yeah, you know, we've seen the, this um, anti-vaccine push take uh, not just include the COVID vaccination, but all the classic childhood immunizations, whooping cough, 
the MMR vaccine, chickenpox vaccine. Um, and yeah, you know, this is just like a sort of relic of the old uh, state of politics. You know, I think this, the Mississippi situation dates kind of from the New Deal. You know, there was a massive push during the New Deal to develop the, the South economically and socially, uh, where, you know, pre, before the New Deal, yellow fever and malaria used to be endemic in the South because it was super poor because it was run by conservative psychos who didn't want, you know, basically anything to get rid of the poverty of the region. And yeah, you know, there, there's a paper that I cite in the article that basically looks into how legitimate is this kind of, you know, religious exemption. Because when you when you ask, uh, you know, all of the major, you know, religious denominations, whether it's acceptable in theory to get, you know, a vaccine, whether it's Catholics or Islam or even some of the more fringy sects like uh, a Christian scientists and Jehovah's Witnesses, they all say it's good. And in fact, if you look into the Facebook uh, groups where people organize this stuff, they, they talk explicitly about using the, you know, s supposed religious exemption as a pretext to say that this, you know, I can't give my kids the vaccine because, um, you know, I have a religious, you know, objection to it. And, you know, the, the, the result is, is that, you know, it doesn't take all that much of a decline in the vaccination rate to bring back these diseases. Um, you know, you need to have your vaccination up to herd immunity to, to, to stomp out the spread of, um, you know, measles and chickenpox in particular, which are incredibly contagious. And I think, you know, you will see, we've seen this in, in a lot of counties around the country where, you know, the vaccination rate dips and you, you start seeing measles and whooping cough and uh, other uh, viruses that were supposedly consigned to the dustbin of history coming back. And I don't Including think... Including polio, right? Yeah, that's potentially... There haven't been that many cases of it, but, you know, it's the same type of uh, disease. And, you know, it's it's funny to imagine that one in particular because polio is quite similar to, to COVID in the sense that it's only a small minority of people who get super, super sick to get have to be put into the iron alone. You know, most people who get polio have an asymptomatic case. Um, and so, you know, you, you could imagine, I mean, the, the way that, you know, conservatives think now, the idea that everyone should be vaccinated to head off the, the possibility of like a small minority of people who are like immunocompromised or otherwise disabled, you know, to protect the whole society, that type of reasoning is just totally anathema on the right now. And yeah, I don't think that the actual polio outbreaks like the 1940s would would make uh, any difference at all. Well, as the article concludes, the new conservative private schools where students learn to read from gun catalogs in the Left Behind series will just have to be equipped with plenty of iron lungs. So let's hope that uh, in this post-Truth America that the alternative facts don't trump the real facts. So I thank you for joining us. Yeah, my pleasure. And again, I've been speaking with Ryan Cooper, who's the managing editor at the American Prospect. He's the co-host of the Left Anchor podcast, as well as the author of the new book, How Are You Going to Pay for That? Smart Answers to the Dumbest Questions in Politics. And his latest article at the American Prospect is Republicans' War on Their Own Public Health. Tens of thousands of conservatives died because they believed anti-vaccine lies. Now the GOP is bringing back measles and polio. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. 
Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared by hand